This is A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends, a podcast ministry of Somebody Cares America, being a tangible expression of Christ in a hurting world. Welcome to another Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends. Whether you're a first-time listener or an active subscriber, we want to thank you for being a part of A Word in Season. On today's episode, you're going to join Doug on our Transforming Leadership Zoom calls. These are bi-monthly meetings that you can find out more about by subscribing to our emails at somebodycares.org. You will never miss an event like this. On this Transforming Leadership call, our guest, Gordon Robertson, who is now the CEO and president of the Christian Broadcasting Network and president of CBN's humanitarian organization, Operation Blessing International, We want you to stay tuned to hear about his story. But before we jump into today's episode, I want to encourage you to pick up the latest book by Doug Stringer called Mending the Net, Healing a Hurting World. And also fresh off the presses is our new Leadership Awakening workbook. This is an accompaniment to the great book, Leadership Awakening. This is a great book to get a group together and study, maybe at your church or your business. Maybe it's something you do as a family at home. But today we need to raise up at all ages, godly, courageous leaders. So we want to encourage you to pick up the Leadership Awakening Workbook. Both Mending the Net and Leadership Awakening Workbook can be found on our e-store at somebodycares.org and wherever books are sold. Now let's join Doug on this call today. Thought it'd be very appropriate as we start talking about uh, how to be persevering godly leaders, leaders in in the culture in which we live. At the same time, to remember that landmark moments in our lives where we've overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. So I thought it'd be great to have Gordon on with us today, uh, and, and Jody, who was who's our vice president of Somebody Cares International, had worked I think nearly 20, 20 something years at CBN. Jody, you want to kind of give a, a introduction and also um, a little bit of backdrop on, on what we're doing today and, and having uh, Gordon Robertson with us. Certainly. Yeah, I uh, was honored to work at the CBN Family of Ministries for 22 years and um, <clears throat> worked closely with Pat on a number of projects and first met Gordon when he was living and working and leading the, uh, the work of CBN in Asia, uh, was in Manila, the Philippines, and Gordon, Gordon and his team rescued me from a, a stupid mistake. I, I was uh, dumb enough to eat a salad in the Philippines and felt like I wanted to die. So Gordon had the uh, doctor send over a, a pill that knocked that parasite right out of me. <laughs> I was, was very grateful and indebted to Gordon ever since. <laughs> yeah, I've always uh, appreciated um, the, the integrity and the, the leadership of Gordon and, of course, his father, Pat, and thrilled to have him here to share you know, his leadership journey, which is an interesting one. I, hopefully he'll share some of the ins and outs of what took him to the place he is today. So Gordon, we look forward to hearing from you. Well, thanks for that, Jody. Uh, I, I remember those days we were doing a feeding program and um, worship concerts and evangelism at a place called Piatas. Uh, and Piatas was the trash dump. Uh, Manila for decades was famous for a place called Smoky Mountain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was called Smoky Mountain, not because it was beautiful scenery in North Carolina, but because it was a mountain of trash that literally smoked. 
that the trash would catch on fire and the people lived there. And the government in the Philippines didn't like to be known for Smoky Mountains, so they moved all the squatters, the trash pickers, to another location called Piatas and, and demolished Smoky Mountain. But it, it didn't solve the problem. Uh, there were still people that made their living by picking trash and uh, substance, uh, substance living. It was, you know, you were fortunate to earn a dollar a day mm -hmm. um, by collecting plastic and recycling it. A uh, real horrible condition. And, but Jody had a great idea. Let's go in there and provide them food and preach the gospel to them and have a worship concert just for them. So we set up stages and um, it was it was quite an event. We had quite a downpour in the middle of it. Uh, this uh, tropical storm came up, and uh, but it didn't damp our spirits, and we went forward to it. Uh, I do remember getting a real profound revelation in the middle of it um, that you know what's going to happen to these people once the food runs out. Uh, we were giving them food for. A, uh, some some families would last a month, others it would last two weeks. And what what was going to happen after the food ran out? And from that, one of one of my producers, Mala Vil Vilvicencio, if I'm pronouncing it right, I've lost my Philippine pronunciation. Uh, but Mila came up to me and she knew I was sort of agonizing over something, and um, she told me a, a parable about a great storm that had washed up a bunch of starfish onto the beach. And a man came along and he started picking up starfish and throwing them back into the ocean. And someone ridiculed him for doing that. Can't you see all these starfish? You can't possibly pick them all up and you can't help them all. What are you even trying to do? And so the man picked up another starfish and threw it back into the ocean and said, well, I just helped that one. And that parable really became the impetus to starting a whole new program for Operation Blessing Philippines, and that is to uh, go into areas of extraordinary need, like the trash pickers of Manila, and do a pilot program based on the children who are under 50% normal body weight. And so that would be your cutoff. And you would commit to a two-year period with those children to bring them back to normal body weight, and then make sure that they have what they need to reintegrate into the public school system. Because most of the poor don't even have the ability to go to school, even if the school is provided for free by the government, which is it is in the Philippines. They don't have the clothes, they don't have the ability to have the books or even a pencil. And so how, how do you provide for that? Um, and it became a great program. And, and here's the, the great thing that came out of it the very first batch, I, I kept worrying about how am I going to staff this. From the very first batch, they volunteered to staff the increase for the future ba batches. They, I was expecting them, you know, once they learned nutrition, got into a livelihood program, got their children back into school, I was expecting them to leave the trash dump. Uh, and they said, no, we can't leave our friends behind. We have to go back to them. It was, a, it was a real transformative experience for me, just how effective the gospel is and, and how effective just doing a little bit is because it becomes viral. People get the concept and then they want to share it with others. So 
Jody's trip and sorry for eating the salad, but a lot of really good has come out of it. And throughout <laughs> Asia, we now have these uh, programs for the poorest of the poor, uh, all, be all because of that one moment in time. Boy, it's probably been 25 years. Yeah. Um, well, Gordon, but, that's a great that's a great point and a segue in some of the larger context that we're all experiencing right now. And that is that even out of difficult moments or even tragedies and challenges, that it, God can turn those things into good opportunities. You know, when we look at Luke chapter 21 and all the, the, cl the climate of challenges and earthquakes and famines and, and wars and rumors of wars, et cetera, verse tw uh, Luke 21 verse 13 says, from Jesus' own words, but it shall be an occasion for your testimony. And what a great testimony that came out of, and sadly, Jody, sorry that you got sick, but truly that out of that moment that how God has been able to take a negative moment into something with a great testimony. Even my first experience 40 years ago, when the Lord gave me, it really tugged on my heart and I was in the fitness business at the time. And I remember having a burden for hurting people but it was born out of prayer and worship and just that sense of God's presence. And out of that came a burden. But I remember a term that I, I began to receive called burden versus vision. And I began to encourage other people that if you have a burden, but you don't really have a vision, connect yourself with those who have a vision till God establishes your own. And then I learned later from Dr. Edwin Lewis Cole, who would become a spiritual father to me. Um, uh, and we actually started officing at the 700 Club office in Houston, when used to have offices around the country. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it was at that place where I began to volunteer at the 700 Club and the CBN locally, unloading trucks, loading trucks, getting volunteers, answering calls, praying for people. And that's really my formative years. And when I met Dr. Edwin Lewis Cole, we actually officed at the Houston 700 Club in preparation for the 1984 first large Christian men's event with Big John Hall, Ben Kinchlow, Dr. Evan Lewis Cole. I was the national young adult coordinator. And so I, I go back to moments like that and realizing these are landmarks that help define who I am today. And I keep reminding myself of those landmarks and God's faithfulness. And then when I think about even the, the CBN and all the family of ministries that you, that you oversee, and of course, that your father, uh, Pat, had founded, what a great story of the lasting legacy of God. But there's a lot of unexpected detours along the way. And you've been able to balance out prayer, presence, worship, with a call to reach out to even those who may not agree with you and oppose you. And that reminds me a lot of uh, John R. Mott, the Nobel Peace Prize recipient in the 1940s, when he used to say evangelism without social work is deficient. But social work without evangelism is impotent. Now we know things have changed today in 2021, but in the context of that statement of what he was meaning really is being lived out through the CBN family of ministries and through many other organizations. And I really feel like that's the balance, isn't it? The tension of us being able to minister to those who even oppose us so we can become a tangible expression of Christ. So I guess a couple of things, I'll just take the next few minutes to share with us Part of your personal journey of uh, overcoming by the blood of the lamb, the word of your testimony, because I know that Jody and I talked, you didn't even really want to be in ministry. You're an attorney. 
And yet God <laughs> handpicked yeah. you and said, no, this is where I want you. And the, the reach that you have all over the world, because you're a man of prayer, you believe in the presence of God. And out of that, God has given you a heart for nations. Well, early on in life, I had some really profound experiences with God, um, you know, from uh, some, some of my earliest memories. Uh, and then a really profound encounter with the Holy Spirit uh, when I was age 12. But by age 14, uh, I was a confirmed rebel. I, I like to say I'm, I'm the black sheep son of Pat Robertson because I saw the price that my parents paid to be in ministry. Um, and you look at CBN today and you know just how, how much it's grown back in the 1960s, it was really hard. Um, you know, we, Dad got a UHF television station on credit uh, back when most television sets didn't have UHF receivers. Um, and we, we were remarkably poor. Um, Dad had a, a TV station, um, and three years later, the family finally got our first TV set. It was, uh, I, that, that was the sequence of events, uh, and it was all done on credit. He, he had this remarkable negotiating ability and, and the ability to get people to say yes to some pretty outlandish things, including RCA. You know, RCA was the leading television manufacturer and television transmitter manufacturer in the world. And he, he convinced the president of RCA to uh, lend him a transmitter with no money down. Uh, so that's how, that's how CBN started. And I saw the cost of it, and uh, my grandparents were well-to-do. One, one was the president of a paint company, and they had lived internationally. They had lived in Beirut, Lebanon for a good part of the 1950s and, and were in Columbus, Ohio. Then my uh, other grandparents, my grandfather was a U.S. senator, and so when I'd go visit them, things were remarkably different uh, than they were at home. And... You know, it's amazing how these things get root in your life. You know, so I, I didn't want to be in ministry at all. I thought ministry was a place where you went to, you know, go be poor. Um, and even though I had this tremendous call and these tremendous experiences, um, I somehow got it into my head that the God of the universe couldn't really provide. And uh, that, that really stuck. And so I became a rebel, pretty confirmed rebel at age 14. And that lasted for two decades. Uh, and and I, I wanted to be all about me. So I, I really wanted to have the ability to uh, make money. I wanted the ability to have power and influence. And so that, that became, a, I'm going to be a lawyer. Um, and in my family, that was okay. Um, in, in the generations of Robertsons, you're either a preacher or a lawyer or a politician and sometimes all three. So for me to say I'm going to be a lawyer was, was totally acceptable. Um, uh, and I, I literally tried to disqualify myself from ministry. I, I didn't want to have anything to do with it. I, I'd go to church occasionally. And, um, you know, the one good thing I did in those two decades was I married a Christian. That was drilled into me. Whatever you do, marry a Christian. Don't, don't be unequally yoked. You don't want to have complete competing biblical views or even worldviews. You you want to you want to have a compatible Christian wife. So Catherine put up with me for 
a couple of years. And then um, I got tricked into going on a mission trip. John Jimenez with Rock Church, who right. he was a pastor's son and he knew a lot about rebellion and he had rebelled and he, for him, it ended up in jail. And he, he, through the grace of God, got out of that and um, uh, had a profound conversion experience while sweeping the, sh the, the floor in a church. And he had ended up, you know, desperate and, and a church had provided a place for him. And, and the exchange was, well, you've got to sweep the floor. So he, he, he gave his life to Christ and he knew what I was going through and he started praying for me. I, I found out later that my father actually put him on assignment and okay. said, John Gordon needs help. And could you, could you pray for him? So he started praying for me and, and God gave him a dream. So here I am practicing law. I'm, I'm a partner in, in uh, a Virginia law firm and um, doing my thing. And he calls me up and said, Gordon, I have a, I had a dream about you. And I knew John from the 1960s. I, I knew that, you know, when he said God spoke, he, he wasn't just playing around. So I, I couldn't just say, you know, oh, well, that's really nice, John. I, I couldn't just sort of dismiss it. I said, well, okay, well, what was your dream? And, and he said, well, I, I dreamed you went with me on a mission trip to India. And I thought that was about the most outrageous thing I'd heard all year. And he, he said, yeah, I, I really think this is of the Lord and, and you need to consider doing this. So again, I couldn't just say no. Uh, I, I said, well, okay, John, well, when are you going? And it was a Thursday afternoon and he said, I'm leaving Monday morning. So my lawyer brain kicked in and I said, I've, I've got the easy fix here. I don't have a visa to India. There's no way he can get a visa to India by Monday morning. Uh, I'll just trick him and okay, um, John, if you can get the visa, uh, I'll go. Uh, I didn't know that the fix was in on his part and he was tricking me. He'd already arranged for a visa expediting service. <laughs> that had already been revealed to him in the dream. He was ready to go and he said, great, uh, where's your passport? That night, my passport, this was back, you know, was 1994. So uh, there was still a, a counter to counter service that air, air, airlines had where you delivered something to the counter in one airport. If they had a flight going, it would be at that counter that night. And so there were regular flights between Norfolk, Virginia and Washington, DC. And so he used the counter to counter service with a visa expediting service in Washington, DC got my passport to DC that night at 8 a.m. They were first in line at the Indian embassy with the fee for an expedited visa service and did the turnaround literally in less than 24 hours. Wow. The next day he called me chuckling saying, I got your visa. <laughs> <laughs> and so I found myself on an airplane, uh, Air India from Kennedy to Delhi, overnighted in Delhi, in the airport, then flew to still called Madras, Chennai, then uh, spent a night in a hotel that was very lavish. And then the next day, got on a train for a 12 hour trip to Rajamundri, India. And Rajamundi translates city of the king. And he's doing 
uh, these, I don't know if it's still proper to call them crusade meetings, but that's what they called them in 1994. He was doing a series of crusade meetings with a church startup in Rajamundry, India. And uh, it's like I'm traveling through time. It, um, you go from the luxury hotel to Chennai to the train station. That was a cross-cultural experience. Um, the sights and the smells of the train station. And then you go to Rajamundry 12 hours later and uh, they're still drawing water from the village well. And it, you, you know, what have I done? Uh, <laughs> this is, uh, I've never experienced anything like this. So I'm there and I think, okay, I'm there for financial support or, you know, maybe John wants me to give to this mission outreach or, you know, I'm kind of scratching my head while I'm here. He comes to me a couple of days later and says, Gordon, I want you to preach tomorrow. And I go, you're out of your mind. <laughs> he said, no, uh, this is, this is of God. You need to preach. So I got up the next day, prayed and, all right, Lord, what do you want me to share with Hindus? And so I preached this sermon, just things I learned at my father's knee growing up. Uh, I hadn't preached uh, ever. Uh, so my first sermon was in front of 15,000 Hindus in Rajamundri, India. I didn't know how to do an altar call, so I just concluded the message and turned around and sat down. And then to my amazement, people started coming forward with no altar call at all. And that's the first time I've had an inkling that God was up to something, that this was different. This was beyond my experience and certainly wasn't based on anything that I had done or I, or I had said. And a Brahmin couple came up to me and said, we cannot help but believe in this Jesus you preach. Your words pierced our hearts like arrows. Mm. I was brand new to Hinduism. I was brand new to the caste system. I had no idea that Brahmins never convert. The pastors at the meeting were absolutely floored that a Brahmin couple was doing this and they wanted water baptism they, because it meant they were leaving their property, their position, uh, they were leaving their family in, in order to become Christian. Um, so, okay, uh, I, I did that and Afterwards, you know, I'm still in the flesh, Gordon, and um, I think I've done my bit for God, and, you know, it's, it's time for me to go home. And John comes up to me and says, well, I've had another dream about you. I'm supposed to go to the United States, and you're supposed to stay here. And to this day, I don't know why I said yes. Everything within me was like, you got to get back to your clients. You got to get back to your practice. You have a wife and child to support financially. Um, you should go back home. Um, but for whatever reason, and I think it was a divine reason, I said, yes, I'll stay. Um, so the next day, John gets on a train, the crusade's over, and he goes back to Virginia. And I stay in Rajamundri and I, I turn to my pastor host and I say, well, what do we do now? And he looks at me incredulous saying, I have no idea. You're supposed to be on that train. <laughs> you're, you're, you're not supposed to be here. So uh, the local pastor host literally abandons me at the train station. So now what do I do? Uh, so I'm, I'm staying in a $10 a night Indian hotel, uh, which was a 
curiosity in and of itself. And so I just go back to the hotel and figure, well, at 10 bucks a night, I can stay here a couple of days. Uh, and that night I'm awakened. I, I think in my mind, I think it's, it's jet lag, um, but I think it's near morning, but no, it's not. It's, it's two o'clock in the morning. And for whatever reason, I felt led to go outside and I'm standing underneath this tree outside the hotel. And um, I asked God to forgive me. And that was a unique thing for me at that moment in my life. I asked him to, to take me back. And it's odd that I just had this sense that he, that he heard it and he understood and, and he was okay with me. He, he was he was loving, he was forgiving, and, and he was ready to accept me back. Then I had this sense that I needed to claim the city, so I started this prayer walk. I didn't know what prayer walks were, but I started a prayer walk, and uh, um, I just started praying with every step. I said, I claim this land and its people for Jesus, and he leads me down to the River God, which is the temple system in Rajamundri, and I thought 15,000 people was a lot of people in a crowd, and here there were hundreds of thousands of people all turned out for this um, Indian festival. And uh, again, I didn't know anything about Hinduism. It was the night of Shiva. And the Hindus believe that the demons go to sleep from midnight to dawn. And so the proper time to worship is the, that point in time, because you're not going to have demon interference. And so they're turning out for the night of Shiva to celebrate and the whole town turns out. It's, um, you know, Rajamundri is a city of around 600,000 people. I'm estimating there were 200,000 people there. Wow. It was uh, something I'd never seen anything like this before. And here I'm doing this prayer walk. I claim this land and its people for Jesus. And they're in the middle of this idolatrous procession where they're carrying statues down to the river and they're throwing the statues into the river and letting them float. They're giving offerings to Shiva and uh, they're all at this temple God. And uh, I've never seen anything like it. I, I, there's no comparison in the place I grew up in Virginia. We've never seen anything like this. And I pray, is it okay for me to go into the temple God? And I got, yeah, it's okay. Uh, I want you to see some things. So I went in there and there here was an, you know, so like immediately upon walking in through the gates, I turned to my left and there's this stone cow and an elderly woman who was bowing down in front of the stone cow, offering up her offering. It was incense and fruit on a bed of leaves and she placed the incense so it would float up into the stone cow's nostrils and, uh, you can see video of idolatry, but until you see it in person, you don't get the sense of it. She got down on her hands and knees and she begged that stone cow for an answer to her prayer. She wasn't going through a ritual. It was with her entire being. She was praying to this thing. And I got two reactions. One, it was anger. How can you, made in the image of God, bow down in front of a stone image? How can you possibly do that? And then the second was, all right, you pray to your stone cow. I'll pray to the living God, and we'll see who gets an answer. 
And it was really like, well, I'm, I'm going to bring down some fire. I was really judgmental. And then I heard a voice behind me, audible voice over my right shoulder saying, no one has ever told her. And it cut me in two uh, that here I was with the full knowledge of the saving power of the cross, the full knowledge of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, raised in a Christian home, baptized at age five, baptized in the Holy Spirit at age 12. And here I was running away from God. And there was a whole world who had never heard the gospel ever ever in their life. And as a result, they were searching for him. They, they, were, they were debasing themselves in front of an idol, trying to get an answer to prayer. And here I was with the knowledge of the truth, and I was withholding it. Uh, and that broke me. And even going back in, in my memory, it, it still breaks me. How selfish I was. How, how could I possibly live for myself knowing that there were people in India who were perishing without the knowledge of the truth? I, I, went, I went back to that $10 a night hotel, <laughs> um, spent the next three days in prayer and um, got a series of scriptures uh, for what to do and um, Went back home and um, announced to my law firm, I'm, I'm resigning. <laughs> and they were thinking I was going to go to work for another law firm. And I said, no, I'm not doing that. Just please release me from the partnership agreement. It had what we call golden handcuffs where you, 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 you can't leave. You've got to do certain things. Fortunately, the managing partner was himself, the son of a minister. He, his father was Bishop of the Episcopal church for the diocese of Virginia. And so, he kind of got what I was doing. Um, uh, at the same time, most of my law partners thought I was crazy. I think they still think I'm crazy, but um, they graciously released me from the agreement. Uh, so within the month, I find myself in China smuggling Bibles, uh, then travel to the Philippines, have a dream there about Filipino missionaries going out to the mission field. And so that becomes my vision of how to preach the gospel to Asia. Let's use Filipinos to do it. Let's train and send them to go to the mission field. And then um, real rapid pace of time. I mean, February was the uh, trip to India, then the trip to China and, and then Philippines was in April. And then by July, uh, everything that could be sold was sold. Uh, everything that couldn't be sold was put in storage. And my wife and my um, year and a half old baby girl, Evelyn, were on a plane to the Philippines. We announced the first Asian Center for Missions class in November. And by March of the next year, I'm back in India with 12 Filipinos, training them how to be missionaries. And as they say, the, that's, that's the beginning of the story. Wow. Uh, the rest of the story has taken a quarter century, but Asian Center for Missions is now the largest training and sending mission agency in the Philippines. Uh, one of the largest ones in Asia. Um, Operation Blessing Philippines came out of that. CBN Asia came out of that. CBN Asia became the 
uh, model for international work where we view our role is to train local Christians how to do Christian television. Uh, we started our first broadcasts in 1996. Uh, by 1999, CBN Asia had reproduced into CBN Indonesia, CBN India, CBN Hong Kong, CBN China in Beijing, and CBN Thailand. Uh, all of them are thriving. There's some ongoing issues with the Beijing office, uh, as well as with the India office, as Hindu nationalism and Chinese nationalism try to drive Christianity out. Uh, but... Um, it was an incredibly creative period of time, almost explosive. My God, trying to make up for 20 lost years in my life. You know, let's fast forward this in ways that only God can do. And uh, I am so glad I picked up the phone and said yes to John Jimenez. Uh, it's been an incredible adventure. And I will absolutely say it beats practice and law every day, all day. Wow. There's a couple of questions that come out of this very powerful testimony. I knew bits and pieces, but nothing in the completeness of how you've shared this. And I think it's powerful. One thing I, I want us to, to hear a little bit about your perspective on the importance of Christian media more than ever before. And the other is, I got a text from uh, Paul Cole, the son of the late Dr. Evan Lewis Cole, that uh, I get to serve the, on the board of the Christian Men's Network. Paul's the president. And he said something in this text just now, he's on this Zoom call. He said, this is an awesome story. And he said, thank God for John Jimenez. And I began to think about that because everything we do is built on a foundation. And, and the reality is that thank God for Pat Robertson. Thank God for David Wilkerson. I'm friends with Gary Wilkerson, his son who's serving in ministry. Paul Cole. I mean, Paul and, and Gary are sons of preachers. And yet they, they were wanted to be in the business world. And God called them the same way with you. So thank God for Leonard Ravenhill. You know, I know David Ravenhill, the son of the late Leonard Ravenhill. So there's so many who've carried a legacy based on foundations that were already laid and established and that we all beget, beget to be the beneficiaries of. So I just, uh, from your perspective, uh, what, what is the, the importance of one, realizing we need to build on foundations, not faulty foundations, but built on a foundation that we get to build on. So it's not about us. It really is about the many who have laid a foundation for us to build on. And secondly, the, the importance of the good news in, in Christian media in the culture in which we live. Well, let me take the second part first, uh, the importance of, of Christian media. It's the power of testimony. Uh, you, you quoted that wonderful verse from Revelation, the, the word of our testimony. You know, it's the blood of the lamb, which we have, the word of our testimony, and we do not love our lives unto death, that we're willing to die for our testimony, what, what God has done for us. The word of your testimony encourages others that if they do the same thing, they'll get the same result. And I've, I've been around Christian media all my life. I, I grew up in a television studio. I didn't know how much I knew about media until I got back into it. I actually know more about media than I know about law because I didn't grow up with law. I grew up with media. Uh, and the, the, the formula, if you will, that CBN has found to be the most successful thing we do, and that is we show a testimony that's current, that's in the heart language of the audience, 
And then we get a host who looks like them and talks like them. And we have the host lead them in a prayer. The testimony without the prayer isn't nearly as effective as the testimony with the prayer. You literally have to show people what to do and what to ask for. And that testimony plus prayer leads to incredible change. And that change is eternal. That's not some temporary thing. Uh, We do lots of of, uh, surveys to backstop what we do. I want to look at effectiveness. I don't just want to send messages out and not not ever, or television programs out and and not ever measure results. Um, That, it's absolutely key to do that. And what we see is profound, permanent change where people who never went to church are now going to church on a regular basis. And it's not just for them, it's for their entire family. The second thing we've learned is that people need a context for their faith. So it's not just the the hearing, the testimony, and the prayer salvation. They need to fit that within a larger context. And it's curious how we found that out. We found it out in Southern China. We got permission to put a testimony show on Hong Kong television and Cantonese, and we were getting results, but we're, we were finding that the results tended to fade away. And I think every evangelist should pay attention to the parable of the sower. Uh, you find it in Matthew chapter 13, and, and just how the ground needs to be prepared. That if you sow the word on hard ground or thorny ground, that Uh, things will happen. Either persecution will come up and snatch it away or immediately because it won't take root, you know, the birds of the air come and take it away. Uh, So you need that good ground. And that good ground is someone who knows the stories of the Bible. And we did a survey in, in Southern China that the only thing they knew about Christianity, they'd heard the name Jesus, but the real thing they knew was, was Christian weddings. And in a polytheistic um, multiple marriage culture that was China 100 years ago, um, they really noticed and admired what the Christian missionaries were doing, that it was one man and one woman. And, and in a, a Chinese culture where if you had enough money, you could have four wives, but the children of wife number four were, were destined for poverty. And so they realized socially that that's not a good thing. And, and what do we do? So they adopted Christian marriage without understanding Christianity at all. Mm-hmm. So you could have a prayer and a prayer to Jesus on television for salvation after a testimony, but there wasn't any context. Um, I, I used that and then did some measurements in India. You know, why do people go back to idolatry after having an encounter uh, with Jesus in prayer? Why, why would they go back to their idols? And it's because they didn't have, they weren't good ground. There, there weren't things to uh, the stories of the Bible to grab onto. And so that led to let's reimagine Superbook and get uh, Superbook and the stories of the Bible out into these cultures. I was using it primarily as um, a, a way to create awareness and and biblical literacy among a whole generation. I didn't realize that Superbook would also be a salvation tool and a discipleship tool all at the same time. And that was really astounding to me. And Superbook now is in 
50 plus languages uh, with audiences of like 200 million a year. And um, the, the sort of one-two punch media of the testimony stories, prayer for salvation, and then uh, Superbook telling them the stories of the Bible in their own language, it um, really, it's, an, it's amazingly effective. So we're, we're seeing the needle move. You know, I'm always wanting the needle to move faster and harder, but it, um, Indonesia at this point, we're projecting Indonesia could be a Christian country by 2040. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the wave of persecution that's currently hitting India is disturbing to me. And, you know, it's, it's one of those what, you know, I always puzzled at, at Paul's prayers for open doors. And now I understand his prayers for open doors that when the government cracks down, it, it's very hard. But even in the crackdown, the word doesn't ever return void. And the word of the testimony, um, the word of the Bible stories, the, when we understand Jesus is the word, that it never returns void. So I, I like to point Christians and encourage them. The, the, the place with the fastest growing Christian population in terms of percentage is Iran. Uh, they have more Christians being, being converted today than than any other nation on uh, on the planet in terms of percentage, the nation with the highest in terms of sheer numbers is China. Uh, so the even in persecution, the the word is effective. It's powerful, uh, and it transforms. Amen. Well, I love that. Um, you said something earlier too, quoting Proverbs. You said that remind me of a scripture in Proverbs: "To the satisfied soul, he takes for granted the honeycomb." But to the hungry soul, even the bitter things are sweet. And that encounter you had in India, and that has catapulted you or propelled you into where you are today, that you didn't aspire to be the president of an international ministry, but you had a personal encounter that, that God was able to do something in you, now through you, as you made yourself available to him and simply walk in obedience with him regularly. But it came from that encounter recognizing that she didn't have the gospel. And even though you weren't serving the Lord at that time, you had more than she had, and you were able to minister to her, minister out of that place of burden of recognizing you have a lot more than you think you have by making yourself available and being used by God. So in that context today, when the, you have a multiple uh, family of ministries at CBN all over the world, of course, we interfaced uh, with your ministries in Indonesia in 1998, of course, and during the economic collapse there, and, and even seeing the, the, the amount of millions of people, Christians, that, that really came to the surface during persecution and challenge in Indonesia, that in the midst of all that are now praying for the Church of America every day. And to see one of the largest global prayer movements is actually not just South Korea, but out of Indonesia, uh, prayer movements in the gospel. And so it's a powerful thing to see out of the most difficult of circumstances, great things have emerged. And so in that context, with so many disheartened and and hearts are overwhelmed right now in the global climate and our national uh, divisiveness, do you believe that we are ripe for another great move of God out of these most difficult of times? Well, I, I got a very unusual event that happened two days after January 6th. Um, 
January 6th kind of shook me. Um, you know, what what is going on in our nation that people would be willing to invade the Capitol and, and interfere with um, senators as they're fulfilling their constitutional duty. It really, it really profoundly affected me. Uh, two days later, um, I, you know, lived near a, a pier. My wife said, look out the window. There's a bald eagle on the pier, which was pretty unusual. So um, I broke out my camera and just, you know, well, let's photograph this unusual event. I, you know, not many times bald eagles come. <laughs> so I, I took a picture of it. And um, later that night, um, you know, my lens wouldn't, wouldn't get it full frame. And so I took it into Photoshop and zoomed in on it and cropped it. And then to my amazement, um, it was right at sunset. And so the sun's going down. It was what photographers call a blue hour. The water behind it was red, white, and blue stripes. Mm. So here's a bald eagle facing left. Its feathers are ruffled on the right. Uh, and it's over against the water, red, white, and blue. And I just heard that still small voice, the Republic still stands. Mm. Um, we have to recognize in the middle of all the turmoil, in the middle of all the government change, in the middle of what I perceive will be uh, increased Christian persecution, uh, with the first target being our Christian schools, um, that the Republic still stands. We, we still have the opportunity to preach the gospel. You know, it's interesting you, you bring up Indonesia at the height of those riots where the military was turned against the civilian population. Mm -hmm. That's the precisely the time God told me to fly to Indonesia and start CPN Indonesia. We had had some other efforts, primarily around Christmas. Uh, there had been some other relief efforts trying to promote those programs, but had not really established an office. And so here we are in the height of the Suharto being deposed, uh, new uh, governments coming in, uh, incredible Christian persecution in the remoter islands, um, but also Christian persecution right in the heart of Jakarta. And uh, I fly into that in order to start CBN Indonesia. It's these moments where everything seems to be at its most extreme is precisely the moment where we need to preach the gospel. We need to understand our Republic still stands and it's still um, a symbol for the entire world of what a nation can be when we put God first, and that when we live in accordance with his covenant. I had a rabbi tell me uh, that America is unique in world history and it's the only other country other than Israel that was founded to um, pursue biblical principles, to pursue the commandments. It's the only other country that was founded on a concept of covenant, which is pretty amazing. And whether that was the covenant made by uh, the Mayflower or the, the covenant made by the Virginia company or the covenant that was made in our US constitution, of we, the people of the United States of America, agree. I mean, we agreed together. We made covenant with one another. 
uh, every other nation doesn't have that kind of concept uh, and just how radical and revolutionary it was to say, we the people, uh, we form our government and, and that republic still stands. Uh, is it shaky? Yeah, but it's based on a kingdom that is unshakable and a king who is unchangeable. And we need to keep him first and foremost. Our allegiance should never be to a political leader. It should always be to him. And his commandment over us is still the same. Go preach the gospel. Disciple all nations. Do this. Uh, so now more than ever, we need to renew our commitment to the Great Commission. Renew, the, renew that commitment just to our neighbors. Uh, how can we say we love our neighbor when we withhold the gospel from them? And in our lives, are we shining forth his grace and his mercy and his love? Uh, our, if, if we were uh, put on trial, would we, we be convicted of being Christian? Uh, and I hope we are because that is the best place we can be. And then our word of our testimony is remarkably effective. Mm -hmm. So for America today, there's huge hope and huge hope for uh, a turning back to God and not just um, in some sort of public meeting or, you know, I, I, I went to, you know, the mall and I prayed and, and I've done my thing. No, it's a lifetime commitment that we are children of the most high God and we live in accordance with his precepts and that is what we are going to teach our children and our children's children when we have that kind of resolve we are unstoppable we hope you enjoyed this episode of a word in season with Doug Stringer and friends and ask you to prayerfully consider supporting the ministry at somebodycares.org or by texting your donation amount to 805-422-7348 Please join us again for A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends.